Well, good morning, Weymouth. Good morning. Welcome. Welcome once again. Thanks for, for joining us this morning in person or online. Welcome. My name is Chris. I'm the pastor here. We're really uh, glad you're with us this morning. Uh, as we get started, our pattern is, is we uh, just spend a few moments in just silent prayer uh, in the quiet of our own hearts to prepare ourselves for worship, and then we'll stand and sing a couple songs together. So please uh, bow and pray with me. psalmist writes in Psalm 146, Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his, when his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over sojourners. He upholds, upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. Father, that is our, our prayer this morning, that we want to praise you because you reign forever, because you are the God who made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. So Lord, show us anew this morning how uh, fully and infinitely worthy you are of our praise, of our trust, of our obedience. Help us not to trust in anything else this morning. Forgive us for all the ways we've looked to other things, other idols, um, for our salvation, for our security. Help us to put our trust in you alone and to praise you for your glory and your grace. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Please stand and sing with us. Son, I 
Say. 
again for joining us. This is a, a great time to be together, and this is, this is a fun week for me, because this week I get to do uh, what is uh, probably my favorite thing as a pastor outside of, of preaching the word, which is uh, baby and child dedications. Uh, so this morning I want to invite up uh, Matthew and Katie Robinson and their kids Miriam and Susanna to come on up to the front. We'll do two, uh, I guess, baby slash toddler dedications this morning. Um, which are great, and this is something we practice as a church family to, to celebrate the, the new life in our church, to celebrate babies and kids, and to dedicate them to the Lord. So I'll give you guys this, make sure it's on here. I've made that mistake before. Um, maybe I'll give this to you, Matthew, here, and maybe just tell us who you guys are, where you're from originally, and then how you uh, ended up here at Weymouth. Yeah, um, so we're uh, originally from Georgia, and we're living there until just uh, this past June, mm-hmm. um, and we uh, came up here for my job as an editor at um, Union Gospel Press, mm-hmm. uh, which is changing its name to Lifestone Ministries, mm-hmm. um, but they're a non-denominational Christian publisher up in Middleburg Heights, so uh, we came up here for that, and um, felt like that's where, this is where God was leading us, and we found Weymouth pretty quickly uh, when we got here, and we really appreciate uh, just the way the Bible is central to everything, and uh, just the faithfulness to the Word and the community <laughs> here. So, um, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It looks like a lollipop, right? Yeah, don't need it. That's great. Well, you guys can hold on to that. Uh, so, let me just uh, read some scripture for us here. Matthew ten, thirteen to sixteen. It says this. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And so Matthew and Katie were were really glad we're filled with joy that you guys are here that that Miriam and Suzanne are here and and, and part of what we're doing maybe Katie could just tell us uh, how old is Miriam how old is Susanna you got two girls which is I think the best the best setup for a family right two young girls yeah yeah Fairly, like, <laughs> yeah. Really yeah yeah really, yeah absolutely um, big so Miriam, fan Miriam's two almost two and a half and Susanna's two months <laughs> all right two months nice yeah and I was very impressed you guys were here the Sunday after Miriam was born which is amazing. Chris and Amanda Smith did the same thing with Pat, and it's kind of unbelievable. Definitely did not do that with my girls. Um, that was very, so we really appreciate your, just your faithfulness and your involvement here. And so as we think about a, a baby dedication, part of uh, what we are doing this morning is we are joining as a church family, we are joining Matthew and Katie uh, as they give thanks for their little ones, and as we also give thanks for their little ones and for them as, as part of our church family. And so together we acknowledge the, the claim that the the, the children of a Christian home have upon the prayers and the service of a church. Part of what we're doing this morning is not just for, for Matthew and Katie to stand up here and dedicate their kids to the Lord, but for us to bear witness to that and also say as a church family that we are committing to help them raise their children in the Lord. 
Because as believers, it's a great gift that God's given us birth into earthly families, into earthly homes, but he's given us even the, the, the greater, sweeter gift in Christ of knitting us together as a church family, as the body of Christ, as part of the, the, the universal global church, but also as part of this local expression of that body, this, this family here at Weymouth. And so we welcome here, uh, we welcome Miriam and Susanna as uh, the Lord, as uh, Christ our Savior, welcomed little children during his earthly ministry. And we also say that we acknowledge that, that God has a claim upon the children that he has given to Christian parents. And so it's the duty of, of Christian parents and uh, the church to work together so that if God so wills uh, in the years of understanding, these children might come to a saving faith in Christ and might grow towards uh, maturity in Christ. And so I have a few questions for you guys this morning as you dedicate your children to the Lord. So Matthew and Katie, do you acknowledge with gratitude uh, the goodness of God who has brought you the gift of these children? You can just answer, we do. We do. Do you recognize the serious and tender responsibilities which are now yours and that it is your duty to teach and train Miriam and Susanna from their earliest years to love and obey God? We do. Do you then resolve that, enabled by the grace of God and guided by the scriptures, you will bring Miriam and Susanna up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and to always regard this as your constant duty and sacred privilege? We do. Do you promise to endeavor to order your home, your words, and actions, so that Miriam and Susanna will be surrounded by pure thought, holy living, and a Christ-like example? We do. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, here's, here's the fun part, right, where we get to, to bless the children. You never know how this is going to go, so this is good, but we'll, we'll take Miriam first here. You want to see? You want to you wanna come over, see how you do? Hi. Oh, hello. Oh, hi. All right, well, well, Miriam, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and give you his grace. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace now and forever. In Christ's name, amen. Good job. That was really good. Well done. You did better than my own daughters did with that. Very good. There you go. Oh, and now, oh, the little one. Oh, 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 look at you. Oh, that's a big stretch. Look at that. Oh, 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 oh. She's still sleeping, which is not unlike some, some people on Sunday mornings. Um, <laughs> I include myself in that sometimes. Um, well, Susanna, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace now and forever. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Ooh, there you go. There's your mommy. Don't worry. Okay. Well, let me uh, pray for us here. Well, Almighty God and everlasting Father, you've promised that you will be not only our God, but also the God and Father of our children. And so we give you thanks for Miriam and Susanna. We ask you to keep them under your care and protection. Bring Miriam and Susanna early in years to know and love and follow the Lord Jesus. And grant that they may grow wise and strong and in favor with God and man. We pray that you'll bring Miriam and Susanna safely through their childhood days and that you'll deliver them from the temptations of youth. And please lead them in due time to witness to a good confession to Jesus Christ, to trust in him as their savior to do so all the days of their lives. And we thank you that our Lord Jesus Christ shared 
at Nazareth, the life of an earthly home. And so we ask you to bless, we beseech you to bless the home of Matthew and Katie. And we ask you to grant them wisdom and understanding as they parent their children. And we ask for all who will have care of Miriam and Susanna uh, in the home, in the church, that they may help them to grow up in your love. They may help them to grow towards maturity and faith in Christ. And we ask all of this for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name, amen. Amen. Well, thank you, guys. You can go grab a seat, uh, and then we'll, uh, we'll keep the, the fun going. I'm going to invite now some older kids to come on up to the front. So any other kids that are fifth grade and below, um, we're going to come and, and do our next question in the catechism here. So you can come up to the front. Nice. I see some, some more boys this morning. That's awesome. Get this just in case. Uh, welcome. You guys can come have a seat here on the steps. Yeah, you can sit right there. Perfect. Uh, all right, you guys, good morning. Welcome. So we are making our way through the New City Catechism. We are looking at these questions and answers that uh, kind of summarize for us what the Bible teaches, what we believe as Christians. And so this morning we are on our next question, question 47 here. We've been talking about the, the Lord's Supper. Who knows what another name for the Lord's Supper is? Yeah. Lunch, dinner, breakfast, yeah. That, that's another name for supper, yeah. Banquet, that's good. Yeah, when we talk about the Lord's Supper, it's, it's a banquet that we share as a church family. It's a meal that we share as a church family. Any other words we might use to call it when we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, we have this meal together, we, call it, uh, we also call it communion, right? We, this is a time of communion where we take the bread, we take the cup, uh, which are symbols of what Jesus has done for us. So we've been talking about this in our catechism questions, and, and last week we talked about how in, in taking the bread and receiving the cup, we are reminding ourselves, we are rejoicing with ourselves uh, in what God has done for us in his son and sending Jesus to die and rise again for us as our savior. And so our question this morning is also about communion, about the Lord's Supper. And it's this, does the Lord's Supper add anything to Christ's atoning work? Now that word atoning, that's a big word. That just means Christ's rescuing work, his work where he died to pay the price for our sins to rescue us and bring us to God. Does the Lord's Supper add anything to Christ's atoning work? And the answer is no. Christ died once for all. So now, I don't know about this. Uh, raise your hand if you have like a weekly allowance. Any of you, any of you guys, is that not a thing parents do anymore? Yeah, okay. Uh, raise your hand if you've ever bought something with your own money. Yeah, there you go. So your parents just gave you the money and you bought it, I see. Um, what, uh, what kind of things have you guys bought? Like games, toys, candy, that kind of thing, right? So say you go to the store. If I want to go to the store and buy a piece of candy, buy a Reese's or a Kit Kat or something, even though people keep giving me candy because it's October, um, <laughs> Right? Like, if I was to go and buy a piece of candy, uh, how many times would I have to pay for that candy? Once. Once, right? Would it be fair if I bought the piece of candy, went home and ate it, and then I got a knock on my door and it was the store manager who was like, hey man, you owe me another $5 for that candy that you just ate? No. No, why wouldn't that be fair? Because you only wanted one thing. Yeah. Right? Exactly. I just wanted the one thing and I paid the price for it, right? So it would be unfair, it would be unjust to have to keep paying the price over and over and over again, right? And so sometimes we have to be careful with things like communion and baptism, even showing up and coming to church, even doing good things in the church to make us, because sometimes we can do those things and start to think, oh, it's, it's by doing this that I'm paying the price for my salvation. It's by taking communion or it's by showing up on Sundays or it's by going to youth group or going to Weymouth Kids that I, I, I'm earning something from God. I'm paying for my own salvation. Because what the Bible teaches and what communion reminds us is that there was one price to be paid for our sin. 
And that's a price that we either pay when we die and we stand before God in judgment, or it's the price that Christ himself paid on the cross. And if you believe in Jesus, if you believe in what he did on the cross, what we believe is that his, his death, his resurrection, was the, the full payment for sin. That Jesus paid the full price to, to rescue us, to atone for all our failures, all our mistakes. And so it would be unjust, it would be unfair for God to demand us to pay that price again or to demand for us to have to keep doing things to pay for our salvation. And so communion and, and the Lord's Supper and these other things we do in the church, they're never acts that we do to try and purchase our own salvation again. They're never acts that we do because those things are going to save us. They're always things we do because they tell us, they preach to us, they remind us about the price that Jesus paid, the full, once-for-all, final price he paid for our sins on the cross. And so when you come to church and you see us do these things, whether it's communion or whether it's baptism, whether it's singing, we're doing these things not because we think these things will save us, will pay the price for us, but because we're celebrating, we're remembering, we're resting in the fact that Jesus paid the full price for our sins, that his, his work is finished. He died once for all to bring us to God. And so if you have faith in Jesus, you never have to worry about paying the price for your sin because Jesus paid for it. And so then you can live life as a follower of Christ, live life in the church rejoicing and resting in what Jesus has done for you. Does that make sense? Any questions about that? Sound good? All right. Well, think about that the next time you buy a piece of candy here. Um, let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for the, the gift of uh, grace you've given us in your Son who uh, accomplished this perfect atoning work for us, who paid the ultimate price for us, the final price uh, for our sin, who, who died in our place to, to bring us into your presence. So, Lord, guard us against looking to anything else for our salvation, looking for any other ways to try and purchase or earn our salvation. Help us to rest in the finished, perfect work of Christ alone and to rejoice together, to praise your name because of your goodness and your grace and your mercy to us in Jesus our Savior. In his name we pray, amen, amen. All right, well, it's time now. We're gonna, you guys are going to go to Weymouth Kids. You're going to follow Mrs. Martin or go back to your parents if that's what they told you to do. And then the rest of us will uh, we'll stand and we'll sing another song together. Mr. Slides, may, can you please give us Tis So Sweet rather than 10,000 Reasons? Spoiler alert, we're singing this song later. That's pretty good. Just the last song, please. This is 100% my fault. I said I'd check the slides to make sure they're all in order, and apparently I did not. So. <laughs>
so sweet to trust in you, to trust in your name and all that you've done for us on the cross. Lord, I thank you that we can live our lives free and free from the, the curse of sin and that we can praise you here and now and, and all throughout our lives, Lord. I pray that our lives would, would reflect your grace and your glory. Lord, I pray that you'd be with Pastor Chris as he comes to deliver your word, that we would open up our hearts to receive your word here this morning and and take it out into our own lives throughout the week here, Lord. Pray all this in your name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I invite you to turn your Bibles to the book of Jonah, Jonah chapter 1. Uh, we started a series last week here. We're going through the, the book of Jonah. Uh, we looked at the first three verses of chapter 1 together last week. We'll look at the rest of the first chapter this morning. Jonah is one of the the 12 minor prophets towards the end of the Old Testament. It follows the book of Obadiah. It's right before the book of Micah. Uh, As I said last week, there's no shame in using your table of contents to find the book of Jonah, uh, because I have to do that from time to time in my study here this week. Uh, And as you're turning there, just uh, a few quick announcements to make you aware of this morning. Uh, This coming Saturday, we are having our our fall festival. Uh, That's going to be a time here at the church from from 1 to 4 p.m., uh, it's going to be a great time. We're going to have trunk or treat. Uh, Ambassador is going to come do a soccer clinic for kids ages 6 to 14. Um, we're going to have pumpkin painting and hot chocolate and cider and snacks and games and things like that. So it's going to be a good time. So we encourage you to invite friends, invite neighbors during this week to, to come check that out. And uh, we want to invite you too. If you want to host a car, decorate your trunk, hand out candy, you can sign up at the welcome table. You can sign up online to do so. And if you have signed up to host a car, we're uh, going to be opening up the parking lot in the church building at 11 on Saturday, so you can come anytime between 11 and 1 to, to find a place to park, to get your car set up, get ready to go for when the, the kids start coming at 1. So that's this Saturday, and then also uh, we are partnering this holiday season, this Christmas season, with uh, Oasis of Hope, which is a, a local crisis pregnancy center, a local ministry here in Medina. Uh, we, are, we are sponsoring a Christmas tree for them. We decided last week that the Christmas tree is going to be superhero-themed, Right, I know there's some, some Marvel fans out here, and hopefully over time there'll be some more DC and Batman fans, but we'll see. 
Um, we'll see if you, but uh, over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be asking people if you have decorations you'd like to bring in and donate, uh, superhero themed Christmas tree decorations, you can bring those in, uh, drop them off at the welcome table on a Sunday, drop them off in the church office during the week. And then on Wednesday, November 1st, uh, we are going to meet, uh, we are going to meet at the, the hall uh, to decorate the tree and get ready for the event, which is on November 3rd. And so that Wednesday, the first, instead of having our normal family night, we are going to uh, to meet at 5:30 uh, at the hall uh, where the event is happening and uh, decorate the tree from 5:30 to 7. So that will take the place of our normal Weymouth kids, our normal Weymouth students, youth group, parent connect stuff like that on the first. So be be uh, encouraged. To, we encourage you to to come join us to donate decorations to come help us decorate. And you can find more details in the bulletin and on our website weymouthchurch.com uh, and our church app about that. So we encourage you to, to participate together in that ministry opportunity. So I just want to throw those out here before we get into the sermon. So now look with me at Jonah chapter 1, uh, verses 4 to 17. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. And the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. And they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea, and the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Amen. This is the word of God. Please pray with me. Father, as we come to your word now, humble us. Speak to us, Lord. Give us, give us eyes to see the truth of your word. Give us hearts that are receptive to uh, the, the encouragement, the conviction, the comfort we see in this word. Lord, just help us as we experience storms in our own life to look to the safe, the safe harbor of Christ as he's revealed in the pages of scripture to us. We thank you for this gift. Help us now to receive it. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Well, in one of the uh, early chapters of, of Herman Melville's famous book, Moby Dick, you know, that giant book that no one ever reads in high school, right? 
I didn't actually read it, but I read a couple chapters of it this week, so I can quote from it. Um, but uh, in his book, Moby Dick, there's, there's a chapter, chapter 9, where the, the narrator, Ishmael, he is, he is in New Bedford, Massachusetts, looking to get on a boat to go on a whaling trip. And while he's in New Bedford, he goes to a whaler's chapel. He goes to visit a chapel that was kind of meant for, for whalers and their families to go and to worship before they would go out on these long voyages to go hunt whales. So he goes to this whaler's chapel in New Bedford, and there's a, a, a cold winter storm raging around him. And he enters the chapel, and he takes his seat, and, and then the chaplain walks in. And the chaplain's name is Father Mackle, which is just a great name for a chaplain. Like, it's just one of these great literature, old-school chaplain names, Father Mapple. And Father Mapple's an interesting guy. He was a former whaler who's now a pastor. He's now a chaplain. And he kind of organizes his whole church, even his pulpit, looks like it's all part of a ship. Like, it's like a, he makes the whole thing like a ship. He uses ship-like, captain-like language as he addresses the, con the congregation. And in the book, in the midst of a, a raging storm in this little chapel, Father Mapple, he preaches a sermon on Jonah. And he declares in the book, he says, Shipmates, this book, the book of Jonah, this book containing only four chapters, four yarns, is one of the smallest strands in the mighty cable of the scriptures. Yet what depths of the soul does Jonah's deep sea line sound? We feel the flood surging over us. We sound with him to the kelpy bottom of the waters. Seaweed and all the slime of the sea are about us. And what he's pointing us to is that the book of Jonah is about a prophet who flees from the command of God, from the presence of God. And when he does so, he encounters a storm, the, the flood surge over him. The water overwhelms him and he is confronted by the sensational power and mercy of God. As we saw last week, God, he had called Jonah to go and preach to Nineveh, to go and preach to his enemies. Jonah was a prophet in Israel, but God called him to go to the capital of the Assyrian Empire, this, this horrific, brutal empire that was threatening the people of Israel. God called Jonah to go and preach to them, and Jonah disobeyed. He disobeyed the call of God. He fled by boat, seeking to get to Tarshish, which was about as far away from Nineveh as he possibly could get. The text even tells us that Jonah was trying to flee from the presence of the Lord. But he is aboard, as he's aboard the ship, as he is trying to flee from God, God brings a storm upon Jonah. He brings a storm to wake Jonah up, to shake him out of his disobedience. And as we read this text this morning, we'll see that we too will feel the floods surging over us. As we read we realize that we too are caught up in a storm. We too are caught up in a storm that's caused by our own sin. A storm that comes from living in a fallen, corrupt, broken world. And so this morning, like Father Mapple and Melville's story, I want to offer us a sermon in the storm. I want us to see in this text that even as we feel the floods surging over us, even as we are overwhelmed by the raging storm around us, that we can look with hope to the God whose power and mercy are revealed in the storm, not apart from it. That's our theme this morning as we look at uh, the rest of this chapter, that God's power and mercy are revealed in the storm. And so we'll look first this morning at God's power in the storm, 
And then secondly, we'll look at God's mercy in the storm. So look with me first at God's power in the storm. Because Jonah, he thought he could flee from God's call. He thought he could flee from God's presence. He thought he could take to the water to go into the open sea to get away from God. But God had other plans. And the language is really interesting in the text because the narrator describes for us that like an ace pitcher, God hurls a storm. He hurls a wind, a tempest on the sea. And I played baseball for seven years growing up, and I was never uh, a great hitter, but I was a decent fielder. Uh, I could catch and could, it could throw, and it's striking this image of God. He's, he's hurling not a baseball. He's, he's hurling the wind. He's hurling a tempest. He's hurling, he's throwing a storm upon Jonah, a storm that rises up and threatens to destroy the ship that Jonah is taking in his flight. And we're meant to see God's power here. Do you see that the might and power of God in this verse? Here we see that the God who created the sea itself, who had the power to unleash a flood on the earth in Noah's day, who had the power to part the Red Sea for Moses and the Israelites to walk across on dry land, this same God has the power to hurl a tempest, to cast a devastating storm upon his disobedient servant. This is his power. God has his ultimate power over creation. He has power over creation, and he uses it to upend the plans of this foolish, fleeing prophet. And as we face storms in our own lives, as we face storms uh, that are caused from living in in a fallen world, or storms that come from our own foolish actions, it can be easy to forget that God is the Lord of the storm. God is the Lord of the storm, that there is nothing in his creation that is outside of his control, that there is nothing that cannot be used by him to carry out his purposes, as surprising or as unexpected as those purposes might be. You see, when the the rains of life are bearing down on us, when the, the, the thunder of hardship is billowing overhead, it can be easy to feel lost, to feel abandoned or hopeless or afraid. But the story of Jonah reminds us that God's power is revealed in the storm, through the storm. That God is sovereign even over our calamities. That he can use even the hardest or the most uh, awful things we can imagine or the things we never dreamed could happen. He can use even those things to carry out his purposes. His purposes which are far greater than any we would seek for ourselves. God can do that. He, his power is revealed in the storm. And we see this particularly in the mariners and the sailors who are in the boat with Jonah and how they respond to what happens in the storm. When he writes to these sailors, these mariners, these were hardened professional sailors. These were not guys who were getting on a boat for the first time. These guys had been on the water. They had seen storms. But there was something about this particular storm that led them to complete and utter panic. They see this storm, and and they're so filled with fear that they begin calling out to their gods. They begin crying out to their various various national or personal deities. Because these sailors here, they were not Israelites. They were not the same people as Jonah. They were Gentiles. They were pagans. And so they came from a variety of places. They had a variety of personal gods that they worshipped. And so they cry out to these gods when the storm comes. But their cries go unheeded. 
The storm rages on. And so we see here that not only does God have power over the storm, not only does he have power over creation, he also has power over the nations. Because none of the false idols, none of the gods of these pagan sailors could save them, could deliver them. They are revealed to be impotent. While Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, he's shown to to have authority, to have power over the storm. He has a power that none of these false idols, these false gods can match. And so with their their cries going unheeded in their desperation, these sailors, they take matters into their own hands. They, They hurl the cargo overboard to try and keep the ship from sinking. They're, they're throwing things over the side of the boat, and as they're, it seems that as they were looking for, for more cargo to throw over the side of the ship, the, the captain, he comes across Jonah. And where is Jonah? He's asleep in the bowels of the ship. He's fast asleep while this storm is raging around him. And upon discovering Jonah asleep, the captain cries out, Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And this is a, a striking moment in the story, especially when we look at the language of what the captain says to Jonah. Because Jonah had fled at the command of God to, to arise and go and call Nineveh to repentance. God had, cho- had, God had told Jonah to arise and call. And he fled, he left. And now here he is asleep in a boat, and all of a sudden he's woken up by the same words that God used to command him back in verse 2. Arise call. As Leslie Allen writes, he says, Jonah must have thought he was having a nightmare. These were the very words with which God had disturbed his pleasant life a few days before. These words that were spoken by God in verse 2 to call Jonah to go to Nineveh, they're now spoken by a pagan sailor in verse 6 to wake Jonah up. That's striking. It's important to see that because it shows us that even in the midst of a storm, a storm brought about by Jonah's own disobedience, God has the power to put his own words into the mouth of a pagan captain in order to get Jonah's attention. He can speak the same words to Jonah that he spoke way back in Israel. Now he can speak them on the open sea in the midst of a storm. And he can use a pagan, a Gentile sailor to speak those words to Jonah. As Keller puts it, God sent his prophet to point the pagans to himself. Yet now it is the pagans who are pointing the prophet toward God. This is kind of authority that God has over the nations. That he can use even those who are far from God, even those who are outside of his covenant people to speak his word. To to, to speak his truth to, to his fleeing prophets. This is the kind of power God has over the nations and in a world where the nations are storming against one another, in a world where the nations are divided and storming against themselves, where we see these kind of storms in our own nation, our own community, our own households, as we live in a world where fear and despair and heartbreak are headlines every day, we need to remember that God has power over the nations. That God is ultimately the one who is ruling over the nations, who is working through them, is using them to carry out his purposes. That he reigns over them, he can work through them in even the most surprising ways to carry out his plans, to fulfill his promises. He's not just the Lord of the storm, he is the Lord of the nations. 
And so as we face the heartbreak, the horror that's brought on by life in a fallen world, the storms that come from, uh, from sin and brokenness and injustice around us, and even in our own hearts and our own rebellion, as we, fate, as we face the heartbreak and the horror of these things, it's tempting for us to, to look for our salvation by calling out to other gods, by crying out to other idols to save us like the sailors did. As we face the storms of life, it's tempting to look to, to false idols like political power or military might or material prosperity or social affirmation. It's tempting to look to these things to save us from the storm. It's also tempting in the midst of the storm to try and seek salvation by our own efforts, to try and hurl our own cargo overboard, to, to look to our own uh, moral efforts or spiritual expressions or earthly achievements and think that these things can chart a course for us through the storm, that these things can save us from the wind and the waves of our own sin, of a fallen world. But in reality, the tempest is too strong. The waves are too high. Our sin is too deep. The creation is too broken for any earthly idol, for any human efforts to bring us true safe harbor in the storm. No, our only hope is the one who has ultimate power over creation, who has ultimate power over the nations themselves, who has ultimate power over us, who reigns over the storm. Our hope is only the God of heaven, the God of heaven who rules and reigns over all these things. And this is what Jonah comes to call God. This is how Jonah identifies God in this chapter, but we're not quite there yet. He's not quite there yet because as the story continues, what we see is that Jonah, uh, after he's woken up, the sailors, they cast lots. They use dice to try and figure out who is the source of this storm, on whose account has it come. Because it was clear to them that this was no ordinary storm. This was a form of divine punishment for someone on board. And so they cast lots to try and determine the culprit, and the lot falls on Jonah. So the sailors, they turn to Jonah and they ask him, they say, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country and of what people are you? And strikingly, in his response, Jonah takes that last question and answers it first. He answers first by identifying himself as a Hebrew, as an Israelite. And as several commentators have pointed out here, in a passage that is so uh, economical with its language, that uses so few words to tell its story, it's striking that Jonah puts his national identity, he puts his civic identity as a Hebrew before his spiritual identity as one who fears the Lord. He says, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord. And so here we're reminded of why Jonah is in this mess in the first place. Because remember, we looked at last week that Jonah uh, is identified outside of his book as, as a prophet in the book of 2 Kings, chapter 14. And in that book, in that chapter, Jonah is revealed to be someone who played a vital role in restoring Israel's borders, in, in elevating and protecting his own people, the Israelites. But then God called him to go to Nineveh, to go and preach into the heart of his enemies, who posed an existential risk for his own people. And so we see in the story of Jonah that up until that point, when, Jonah, when God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh, up until that point, Jonah's faith was working out pretty well for him. His faith was, was lining up pretty well with his national priorities. But the second those two things came into conflict, 
The second God's command bumped up against Jonah's national interests, his civic identity. He fled. He rejected the call of God. He fled and went, tried to get as far away from God as he possibly could. And even in the midst of this storm, he can't put his civic religion aside. He still identifies himself primarily as a Hebrew, and then as one who fears the Lord. And what we're seeing here is, is that storms, the storms of life, they have a way of revealing what's ultimately true about us. They have a way of, of unearthing, of, of breaking us down and showing us what or who we are really trusting in. And so the question for us this morning is, is how would you answer this question in the storm? When you are asked these things, how would you respond? How would you identify yourself? What are the primary identities or, or idols you are tempted to trust in, to rest in instead of God, especially in the midst of the storm? If you were asked the same question as Jonah, would you respond? Would you say, I'm an American, and I fear the Lord? Would you say, I'm a Republican, and I fear the Lord? Or I'm a Democrat, and I fear the Lord? Or I'm a wife, and I fear the Lord? Or I'm a software engineer, and I fear the Lord? Or I'm a parent, and I fear the Lord? As human beings, there's so many things we're tempted to place our ultimate trust in, to find our ultimate identities in before we look to the Lord instead of the Lord. And so what is your primary identity? What does the storms of life reveal about your ultimate hope? And how would you respond if the call of God came and bumped against that identity, bumped against that idol that you are trusting in? What kind of storm would happen in our own hearts, in your own heart, if God called you to say, go and uh, reach out with a kind word to that other mom on the PTO who drives you crazy, right? Uh, what, what would happen, what storm would happen in your own heart if God called you to go and serve that person at work who makes your life miserable, to cross that border, to go and care for them and meet their needs? How would you respond? Or, and this is a tough one, what if God called you to send your kid to a school you didn't want them to go to? to move into a neighborhood you didn't want to move to, to go to an area of town that you didn't think had a good reputation, you didn't think was safe, or you didn't think was good for your family? What if God called you to go there or to another country where maybe it's more dangerous to be a Christian or it's more risky to live out your faith and God calls you to go and take your family there? How would you respond? How would you respond when his call bumps against those idols, those primary identities we are trusting in instead of him? How would we respond? What would we do with that? Would we go in faith or would we too flee? Go down into the belly of a ship to try and get away from the, the spectacular, the sensational call of God. His plans and his purposes, which is already far greater, far more shocking than we could ever imagine. How would we respond? How would you respond if God called you to go and share Christ with that neighbor, with that person across the street who has a yard sign you disagree with? What would you do with that if God called you to, to take that step? You see, the reason that Jonah is in this storm is because he placed his national identity above his fear of the Lord. Because his national identity, his civic religion was so central to who he was, he was unwilling to obey God's call to go and preach to his enemies. That is what was his primary driver in life. And so often, the storms in our own lives, the storms in our own world, they happen because we are placing 
We have placed some other identity or some other idol above God. We have looked at something else for our identity, for our life, for our security, for our salvation. But God sees this. And he knows that as our creator, our true life can only come from a relationship with him, from worshiping him ultimately, from knowing him fully. And so he sees this foolishness. He sees us run into these idols and these false identities which can never bear us up. He sees that. And so in love and in power, he sends storms. He sends storms to wake us up, to discipline us, to get our attention, to show us the false idols our hearts are rooted in that we are looking to in the midst of the storm, in the midst of life, instead of God. He sends these storms to turn our eyes away from ourselves, away from our circumstances, from our idols, and to look to him, the God of heaven. That's what we see start to happen in Jonah's life. We see this start to happen as he answers the sailor's question, because yes, he starts with his national identity, but then he goes on to recognize the one who is truly in control of the storm. He quotes Psalm 146, and he says, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Jonah's saying he's a Hebrew, but he doesn't just worship another god or another idol. He says he worships the God of heaven. He worships the one true God who has ultimate authority over the sea and the dry land, who has power over creation, who has power over the nations, who has power over the storm itself. Jonah sees in the sailors, he sees in his circumstances the truth that God's power is revealed in the storm. And so he comes to realize that he cannot escape from the power or the presence of God. He can't run away from this. So he comes clean. He tells the sailors everything that's happened. He tells them about how he has fled from the Lord. And the sailors are exceedingly afraid because they realize they've been caught in the crossfire of the God of heaven. And so the sailors respond to this news in fear. And so should we. Because as we face the storms that come from our own idolatry, that come from life in a fallen world, as we are tempted to fear the thunder and lightning of our enemies or our circumstances or our hardship, we need to lift our eyes to the heavens. We need to lift our eyes to see see the one who is ultimately worthy of our fear who is more fearful and more astonishing than we ever could imagine, the one who made the sea and the dry land, who rules over the nations, who reigns over the storm. We need to look to him, to look to his power revealed in the storm. Because it's only when we see God's power revealed in the storm when we then begin to see how he works that power to bring us his mercy in the storm. It's only when we see God's power revealed in the storm that we then see, secondly, God's mercy revealed in the storm. A good example of this happened on March 21st, 1748. On that day, March 21st, 1748, John Newton was almost lost at sea. John Newton, some of you might know him, he was a, a captain of a slave ship. He'd been involved in the slave trade for 13 years. And one day he was returning uh, by boat to England when a great storm came upon the water, when a great storm came out of the water and threatened to destroy his ship. And in the midst of that storm, Newton, he cried out for God's mercy. And then when uh, he was delivered from the storm, when God got him to shore safely, Newton, his eyes were opened. 
He came to faith in Christ. He turned away from his wicked ways in the slave trade, and he gave his life in service to Christ as a pastor. He would go on to pastor two different churches over the next 43 years, and he would go on to write uh, the famous hymn, Amazing Grace. And in that hymn, uh, in writing that hymn, Newton, he was helped by a close friend of his named William Cowper. And William Cowper was himself a man who was buffeted by storms of depression and melancholy. And in the midst of all of that, Cowper, he wrote another hymn, a hymn called God Moves in a Mysterious Way. And in that hymn, Cowper wrote, God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. And as we hear those words of Cowper, we can see, uh, we can hear echoes of how God worked in a mysterious way in the life of John Newton. Of how he came to someone like John Newton riding on the storm to deliver him from his wickedness into a life of service to Christ. And similarly, God also works in a mysterious way in the life of Jonah, riding on the storm to deliver the sailors, to deliver Jonah, and ultimately to deliver us. Because these pagan sailors, they were filled with fear when they learned that Jonah was fleeing from God and this was the cause of the storm. And so they asked Jonah, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? And here we see Jonah's beginning to have some clarity. He sees the sailors, he sees their fear, he sees their suffering on his behalf. He also sees how he cannot escape the Lord, he cannot escape his power, his command. And so he knows that he sinned against God. He knows that there is only one way for this storm to calm down, for these sailors to be saved. And that is that Jonah is going to have to die. Jonah is going to have to be swallowed up by the storm. And so he tells them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. And the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Jonah knows that the only way these sailors are going to be spared from God's destruction is if he himself endures God's destruction for them. But the sailors, they don't go along with the plan just yet. Throughout this narrative, we see that these pagan sailors, they're more faithful, they're more moral than Jonah himself. They're always seeking to do the right thing. They're always seeking to, to avoid the loss of life. And so instead of throwing Jonah overboard immediately, they try and row back to shore. They try and get to the shore. We're thinking, hey, maybe if we just get rid of this guy, maybe we just deposit him on dry land, then the storm will stop. Then the waves will cease. But as they row, the storm only gets more intense. The sea is only more and more resistant to their attempts at self-salvation. And so they have no choice. They decide to throw Jonah overboard. But look in verse 14 at how the sailors call out to the Lord. They say, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. As these sailors, as they anticipate hurling Jonah into the sea, they're once again filled with fear. But now they're, they're not feared, fearful of the storm, they're fearful of guilt. They know that, God's, that Jonah's God is holy. They've seen his power over creation. So they know that to, to commit murder, to murder uh, somebody like Jonah, would be to incur blood guilt before a holy God. And so they plead with the Lord. They plead with God to spare them of guilt. They confess that he has done what he wanted, that he is the whole reason they are in this situation where they have to sacrifice Jonah. And do you see here how the, the sailors, how they address God? 
when they call out to him. They call him Lord. And if you look in many of our Bibles, that word Lord is written in all uppercase letters. And what that tells us in our English translations of the Bible is that tells us that the Hebrew name for God, Yahweh, is being translated here as the name Lord, as the word Lord. And this name Yahweh, this, was the, this is the covenant name of God that God revealed to Moses, that he revealed to the Israelites before he delivered them from slavery. This is the same name that Jonah used in verse 9 when he said, I fear the Lord. He said, I fear Yahweh, the God of heaven, the covenant God of Israel. And so here in verse 14, what we have is we have Gentile pagan sailors who are recognizing the holiness and the power of God. And they are crying out to him using his covenant name, the name he has given for his people to call him. And so not only has God used these sailors to speak his word to Jonah, God is also working through the storm to turn these sailors to himself, to bring people who are outside of his community of Israel into a relationship with him. And so they plead to God, and then they, they do it. They throw Jonah overboard. They throw him into the sea. And the sea quiets. It ceases from raging. The storm goes away. And the narrator tells us that the, the men fear the Lord exceedingly. Their fear of the storm has been replaced by the fear of Yahweh. These hardened sailors who were outside the people of God, who were themselves far from God, they go to shore and there they, they offer sacrifices to the Lord. They make offerings to the Lord. They turn to the Lord. And do you see what is happening here? In the grand storyline of Jonah, what is going on? Because as Keller and as other commentators have pointed out, Jonah initially fled from the Lord because he was calling him to go and preach to his pagan enemies. And Jonah doesn't want to see his, his pagan enemies spared. He doesn't want to see them forgiven or rescued. And so he flees from God. But here, in the account of these pagan sailors, God uses even Jonah's flight, he uses even Jonah's disobedience to lead these Gentiles, to lead these pagans back to the Lord. He uses even Jonah's failure to do the very thing he had called Jonah to do in the first place, to call pagans, to call uh, non-Israelites to himself. God carries out his purposes even through the storm, his mercy even through Jonah's failure. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. In his power, he can use even the most fearful storms to carry out unfathomable acts of mercy. He can work through even the worst circumstances to deliver the most unlikely people to himself. John Newton knew this. The sailors knew this. And soon Jonah will know this as well. Because even though the narrative sets us up to believe that Jonah is going to die, that he's going to drown submerged in the waves. In verse 16, we have another example of God working out his power to carry out his mercy. Because verse 16 tells us that God appoints a great fish to swallow up Jonah, to save him from drowning. And look at the progression here. At the beginning of chapter 1, God appointed Jonah to go open his mouth to a great city. And then here at the end of chapter 1, God appoints a great fish to open his mouth to Jonah. Even though Jonah had utterly and completely failed and disobeyed God, by the end of the chapter, God is still merciful to Jonah. He still rescues him. He still delivers him from death. 
And then the narrator tells us something striking. He says that Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And in, in a way that defies our natural expectations, Jonah, he's entombed in the belly of a giant fish, in the belly of a whale for three days and three nights. And many people want to talk about how is this possible? Is this kind of miracle a real thing? Is this a literal thing that happened? But when we look to the pages of Scripture, we look to the full scope of the storyline of the Bible, what we actually see is that what's even more sensational than this miracle in Jonah 1 is actually the miracle, the greater miracle that it points us to. It's not the, the miracle of Jonah 1, it's actually the miracle of Matthew chapter 12. Because if you turn ahead in your Bibles to the book of Matthew in the New Testament, to Matthew chapter 12, we see a scene in which Jesus Christ in which he himself is confronted by the religious leaders. And they ask him for a sign. They ask him for a sign to confirm his authority. And Jesus answers these religious leaders in verse 39. He says, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus is saying here that just as Jonah was entombed for three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so too will he, the Son of God, the Son of Man, be entombed in the grave for three days and three nights. You see, the only way to calm the storm in Jonah chapter 1 was for Jonah, God's servant, to endure the storm for others, to be swallowed up by the fish for three days and for three nights. That was the only way to calm the storm in Jonah 1. And the only way to calm our storm, to calm the storm of God's wrath for our sins, to calm the storm of a broken and fallen world, the only way to calm that storm was for Jesus, God's ultimate servant, God's son, to endure the storm that we deserve, to be swallowed up by the grave in our place for three days and for three nights. You see, what Jonah is enduring here in chapter 1 is, is, is just pointing us forward to what Jesus endured ultimately for us in the Gospels. Jesus himself puts it in verse 41. He says, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus is a greater prophet. He's a greater deliverer than Jonah. Because while Jonah uh, suffered for others, he was actually suffering for his own guilt. He was suffering as a result of his own sins. That's why he was cast into the water. But when Jesus suffered, when Jesus went to the cross in our place, he wasn't suffering for his own sins. He wasn't paying the price for his own guilt. He was suffering for our sins. He was perfectly innocent, and yet he, and yet he died to bear our guilt. He died to bear the punishment that we deserve. And while Jonah was ultimately spared from death, Jesus fully endured death for us. He endured the full price, the full payment for our sin. He was buried in a tomb. But then on the third day, he rose again. And in his resurrection, we see the clearest, the fullest, the most wonderful example of how God's power and how God's mercy are revealed in the storm. We see how God in the resurrected Christ has ultimately worked in power to pour out his mercy. We see in Christ that God has power not just over creation, not just over the nations, God has power over sin and death, over these great enemies that seek to swallow us up, that seek to flood over us, that seek to destroy us. 
We see how God worked his great might in raising Jesus from the dead in order that we might receive his mercy. We see how in the risen Christ, we who deserve to be destroyed for our sin can actually be delivered from our sin. We who deserve to be thrown into the storm are actually spared or actually rescued because Jesus went and was thrown into the ultimate storm for us. And so in him, we can experience the same transformation that the sailors experienced, the same transformation that John Newton experienced. If we trust in Christ who endured the ultimate storm for us, then we can have hope and peace, even as the storms of life, the storms of the world rage around us, even as the storms of sin and temptation rage in the midst of our own hearts, even when God calls us into the storm ourselves to go and point other people to this rescuer. We can have hope and peace and trust because we know the one who has ultimate power, who has ultimate mercy, who is risen and reigning even over the storm. Because when we look to Christ, we see the power and mercy of God revealed in the ultimate storm, the storm of the cross, the storm of the judgment that we deserve. And we can rest. We can find harbor. We can find peace. We can sing with John Newton, through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. His grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Or, as Father Mapple put it, my song forever shall record that terrible, that joyful hour. I give the glory to my God, his all the mercy and the power. Amen. Please pray with me. Merciful Father, we thank you for how you have worked your power in the ultimate storm that anyone has ever endured in the storm of uh, Jesus Christ on the cross. So help us to look to him, to rest in him, in his finished work, in his resurrection. Help us to be so full of wonder and awe in the, in the grace and the mercy that you us in Christ, that we, uh, we cast aside all other idols, all other identities that seek to offer us hope and security but can never deliver it. Help us to rest and find harbor in Christ alone. And help us to go out into the storm, to go out into the places of, of brokenness and destruction, to point people to this harbor, to point people to this hope in Christ. Lord, we thank you for our, our fellow partners and, and friends in ministry for places like Oasis of Hope, places like Live Inspired, for other ministries that are seeking to go into these places to offer the hope of Christ. We ask that you'll encourage and strengthen the, the servants there, that you'll use us in similar ways to go into our neighborhoods, to go to our workplaces, to go to the people you call us to, even if it makes no sense to us from an earthly perspective even if it means enduring a storm for others, that they might know the hope of Christ. And Lord, we lift up other believers in the world who are enduring storms of persecution and oppression. We lift up the church in Maui to you this morning. We pray that you'll strengthen believers there with this hope, that you use them as examples to us and to the rest of your church of what it means to trust in your power and in your mercy in the midst of the storm. So Father, this morning we ask that you'll humble us that you'll use whatever circumstances we're facing to show us, to reveal the idols in our hearts, to lead us to fear you alone, to rest in Christ alone, and to live a life of joy, of rest, of humility, of service, 
in the midst of the storm. Help us to go and preach our own sermons in the storm, to go and point other people to your power and your mercy, ultimately revealed in your Son. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we'll respond by singing one final song together, so please stand and sing with us. God for all
Thanks again for joining us this morning. Uh, I want to say that whatever storms you may be going through personally in your own life right now, we want you to know that there's always an open door here to talk with myself, to talk with the elders, to come into the church during the week, and, and we'd love to talk and listen and pray and, and think, think through these things together and, and rejoice and share this hope that we have together. So the door is always open, and, and as we go from here, let's go with these words from, from Peter writing to a church that itself was facing the storms of persecution here in 1 Peter chapter 5. So here this benediction, Peter says this, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Go in peace.